Good day, everyone. My name's Chris, and we're going to read the Bible together now. Our first reading is from the book of Nehemiah, chapter 1, verse 1 through verse 11. I should have said it's on page 342 if you have one of the the church Bibles. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the twentieth year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hananiah, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burnt with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands... Then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favour in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. Our second reading is from the book of Titus, chapter 1, verse 1 through verse 9, and that's on page 844. Paul a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. And at his appointed season, he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Saviour. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town, as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. 
he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. I've met my name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, it's actually really nice to be back at uh, 6.30. I haven't preached now for six weeks. And it's a real, uh, yeah, I consider it a privilege and honor to preach regularly. And uh, yeah, it's good to be back. Thank you. Uh, you joined us on a good night. Uh, we're looking at a, a new book called Titus. Um, so you joined us at the start of a series. So I'm going to pray. Pray that uh, you and I would uh, hear God address us powerfully tonight as I preach. Let me pray. Father, we come before you tonight as men and women who deserve nothing from you, and yet you have poured your grace on us. Father, thank you for your word, which continues to shape us and refine us and transform our thinking and transform our lives. And Lord, I pray that as your word is preached tonight, your spirit would be so powerfully at work. For those of us who need correcting, would you do that? For those who need encouraging, would you do that? Father, I pray that as I preach, uh, you would address each one of us. Uh, may wa- my words be full of truth and full of love. I'll set for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, tonight I want to talk about uh, something that is really uh, precious to Jesus. I want to talk about something which Uh, Our world laughs at and our world mocks, uh, but Jesus thinks is really, really important. I want to talk about something which we often are embarrassed about and we cringe at, uh, but Jesus has said it's the way that he has chosen to proclaim the gospel to the world. I want to talk about something which we see as ugly. And Jesus says is beautiful. But tonight I want to talk about something which I think we need to recapture. And that is a, a passion for God's church. I want to talk about God's church. I want to talk about uh, the saints, uh, the men and women who love Jesus, who gather together, who sit here and who long to hear God address them through his word and who long to sing his praises and long to pray to him. I want to talk about us as we gather together because God says that we are precious to him. Look at this verse from Acts chapter 20. Paul is talking to elders. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God which he bought with his own blood. See how precious the church is to God? Uh, Precious enough to die for it. Precious enough to shed his own blood for. And that's why God calls his church, his bride and his body and people who are beautiful to him. I want to say right up front, I'm passionate about God's church. God has been pressing onto my heart over the previous months 
this, this desire to, to recapture, have a renewed vision for, for God's local church. And in God's providence, in God's wisdom, if you want, I'm preaching on Titus. That was planned a long time ago. And it's all about the local church. Who should lead the local church? How we should relate as God's church? How we should be seen to be eager to do good? How we should be a, a church marked by grace? And a church that the world looks at and sees the gospel by the way that we relate to each other. So I want to ask you before I start to look at Titus. Do you love God's church? Do you love God's church? Do you long for God's church to be healthy and and growing and, and bringing glory to Jesus? When you see headlines like sex scandal in church, bishop denies resurrection, church irrelevant, church outdated, is there something inside of you that says, no, that is the precious church of God that was bought with the precious blood of Jesus? Do you have that deep, gut-wrenching longing for God's church to display the glory of Jesus? Unless Jesus Christ returns, do you long that in 125 years' time from now, there'll be people in this building who are worshipping Jesus and who love Jesus and who are witnessing to Jesus? Have you got that passion for God's church? Because that's what the book of Titus is all about. God wants us to know about his local church, how to build the local church, how to relate as church. Let me give you some background on Titus. Who's it written by? Look at verse 1. Uh, Paul, a servant of God. It's the apostle Paul, the man who was Saul, who persecuted the church and saw the risen Lord Jesus and was called to be an apostle. Who's he writing to? Look at verse 4. To Titus, my true son, my common faith. Okay, hands up, who knows about Titus? How much do you know about Titus? He's kind of like guy in the Bible who you know very little about. He's not mentioned at all in the book of Acts. It's kind of unusual. Uh, we know from Galatians chapter 2 uh, that he is a Greek. He's of Gentile origin. He's uncircumcised. And he went on missionary journeys, his second and third missionary journeys with Paul. Now, here's the interesting thing. Titus is mentioned nine times in 2 Corinthians. And Titus is the guy that the Apostle Paul entrusts with delivering what is called the severe letter to the church at Corinth. If you know your Bibles, the Corinthians church is a messed up church. It's a church where they're fighting and there's division and there's immorality. Now, what kind of guy are you going to entrust with a letter to that church? I'm building a picture of a guy who is bold and courageous and loves Jesus so much that he's willing to say the hard things. Titus is not your, your, your Timothy. He's not your, your timid Timothy who needs encouragement. He's your bold, courageous leader. Now, what is Titus called to do? What's his job? Well, look at verse 5 with me. 
Uh, the reason I left you in Crete, uh, Crete is an island southeast of Greece. It's about 200 kilometers long, 30 kilometers wide. Paul planted churches there. But the reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Uh, so Titus's job is to, to start from scratch and appoint elders, appoint leaders, appoint people who will, who will shape the church. They're called elders in verse 5. They're called overseers in verse 7. Since an overseer must, is entrusted with God's work, they're, they're people who are set apart to manage God's church, to care for God's church, to feed God's church, and to grow God's church. Now, here's the question. If you want to see a healthy, growing, thriving, flourishing, Christ-centered church, what kind of people are you going to appoint to be your elders? Now, my fear is that in many, many churches, including the Anglican Church, we've slipped into this sort of, this business type of appointments. Look for the high flyers. Look for the successful people. Look for the, the overachievers. Look for the, the academic people. Look for the uh, successful people. Look for the charismatic personalities. What kind of people does God want to lead his church? Sometimes we treat pastors or try treat elders a bit like uh, CEOs and we give them KPIs and we give them performance reviews and is that what God looks for his leaders? Does God want charismatic, competent, classy leaders? Well, look at the list down in verses 5 to 9. Verse 6, blameless, husband of but one wife. Verse 7, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain, hospitable, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. It's an incredible list. But Paul doesn't specify any qualifications. He just talks about qualities. There's no list of tasks there, is there? No list of jobs to perform. Sure, we've got to win the lost, disciple people, nourish people, be careful stewards of, of funds. We need to preach, we need to pray, we need to organize, be psychologists, be architects, do all those tasks, do all those jobs. But God is not care, doesn't care about the jobs and the tasks what God is concerned about is character. The character of the people who lead God's church. And here's the shock. As you read that list from verses 6 to 9, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, hospitable, self-controlled, upright, holy. Is there anything extraordinary in those things? Aren't they the kind of things that you'd expect for any person who claims to follow Jesus Christ? That's the point. They're not exceptional qualities. They're just essential qualities for anybody who calls himself a Christian. And the point is this, that if your elders aren't like it, then the people under their care will have no chance at all. If the people that you appoint as elders in your church are not striving to live godly, holy, set-apart lives, then the people that they teach will have no chance at all. 
I've seen it happen in many churches. I think of a church where I walked into the church and there's this sort of, you get this sense of division and everyone is critical and they're quite aggressive and then you meet the pastor and he's an, an arrogant, proud, bullish kind of man. I think, yeah, that flows. Another church where I went for a few months when I was living overseas and there was just this real lack of any holiness when it comes to sexual purity. You were just lax in terms of sexual immorality. And then I discovered that the pastor from a couple of years back had been a sexually, uh, had been a sexually immoral and adulterer. And it just flowed down. And the point is that your leaders or your elders will influence the the spiritual temperature and the godliness of the people that they teach. And that's why we can't lower God's standard for leadership. Because when the character and behavior of the leaders in the church is so horrendous and so worldly and so godless that the gospel is distorted, and when the lives and integrity of, of the leaders is in question, then the flock under their care, they drift. So tonight, I hope that this sermon will help you pray for your leaders, uh, challenge those of us who are leaders, transform the way you think about leadership. But more than that, I hope and I pray that this sermon will help you look at your own life. Remember, this is not exceptional qualities, but essential qualities. Because this list is what every person, every man or woman who claims to follow Christ should be striving for. Three things tonight. First one is this. Please pray for leaders who are gripped by grace. Gripped by God's grace. Remember who Paul is? The Apostle Paul is a brilliant scholar. He's highly educated. He's a Jewish leader. He's learned in Greek literature and Greek philosophy. He's inherited Roman citizenship. He has a unique calling to be an apostle to the Gentiles. He's planted hundreds and hundreds of churches. And what does he call himself? What title does he give himself? Look at verse 1. Read it with me. Paul, a a servant. Say it again. Paul, a servant of God. Literally, a slave of God. That's the word he uses, a slave. He's saying, I am just God's slave. I've been bought by God. I'm owned by God. I have no life that I can call my own, no purpose of my own, no plan of my own. I just belong to God. And I live for God. And I serve God. And every breath I take is for God. And my work is for God. And that's a man who understands God's grace. Because he's the walking, talking example of God's grace, isn't he? He's a murderer. He killed Christians. He hated Jesus. He's the worst of sinners. And yet, at one, time, one moment in history, the Lord Jesus Christ grabbed hold of him on that road to Damascus. And he shone his light into his life. And he called him his precious son. And he saved him. And he used him. And throughout Paul's life, you see a man who is gripped by grace. Yeah, he's an apostle. He calls himself that in verse 1. He's seen the risen Lord Jesus, but he doesn't lord it over people. He doesn't 
drive around in the fastest car and, you know, make himself inaccessible and make a name for himself. He just wants to serve his God and serve his Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we need in leaders, people who have been humbled by God and call themselves slaves of God and understand grace. If grace is a foreign word to you, it just means God's undeserved favor, God's unmerited love, uh, that the one who made you should see you in all your wretchedness and all the ways that you've ignored him, and yet he reaches out to you and says, I've died for you. My son was crucified for you. And he pours his mercy upon you and says, you're my son and you're my daughter. That's grace. And that's why Paul is writing in verse 1, for the faith of God's elect. God chooses his people. God knows who are his. And God in his time will pour his grace out on his people. And Paul is going to preach Christ. Uh, Because when you've understood grace, you've understood that you have the hope of eternal life, verse 2. You've understood that this life is not all there is, but there's a hope beyond this life. And when you've understood grace, you'll understand, verse 3, that at God's appointed season, God stepped into the world through the person of Jesus Christ. And that's the gospel that Paul preaches. And you see Paul's grace in the way he addresses people. Look at verse 4. To Titus, my young whippersnapper in my superior faith. Is that what it says? To Titus, the young protege, I want to lord it over you. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace to you. Paul's a Jew, Titus is a Gentile, but grace unites them. Paul is old, Titus is young, grace unites them. Paul's a church planter, plants hundreds of churches, Titus is just starting out. But grace unites them. And that's what I love about Paul. No hint of competitiveness, no senior pastor Paul, no pride, no arrogance, no prejudice, no divisions. His church plants are not about building successful churches. They're about building servant-hearted churches and just people who love Jesus. I think about leaders in this church. I've sat with a man recently who came to me to talk about a a battle with sin in his life. And as we chatted, he was repentant and he was was sobbing about the sin in his life. And as a pastor, I said to him, yeah, you need to stop, you need to change your ways. And I just pointed out grace. Just pointed out that he's loved by God and he's covered by grace. I think of another person who has come to me and said, look, I'm, I'm just, I'm fearful I won't keep going to the end. And I go, yeah, so am I often. <laughs> but you know, I'm held by God's grace. That's what matters. And I'm asking you as a church to, to pray that, that God would raise up in his church men and women who are gripped by God's grace who have understood the depth of God's love for them in Christ and that our lives and our ministry are shaped by that. Please pray against, pray against men and women who just want to be successful and want to make a name for themselves. 
And please pray for servants, servants of Christ, servants of God. Second thing is people who love the truth. We need leaders who, who know the truth and who love the truth. Verse 1. Uh, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth. The truth. The definite article, the truth that leads to godliness. The knowledge of, the, the clear perception of, the understanding of, the grasp of truth. God's truth. Truth that's black and white. Truth that is absolute. Truth that finds its origin in God himself. Truth that God has revealed to us by his spirit through his word and is here in scripture. Not some latest pop psychology. That's not truth. Not some open-minded, what's good for you is good for me kind of thing. This is the truth. This is the word of God. And we need leaders who are so in love with the word of God and in love with the truth and say, this is the authoritative, sufficient word of God. Anyone can grow a successful church. Get the right music. Have the right programs. Social action. Love each other. That's not a church. A church is founded on the word of God and on the truth of God. And we need leaders who will love the truth and hold firm to the truth because what is their job? Look at verse 9. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message, to the truthful message, as it has been taught, so can he, he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. He must, verse 9, hold firmly, grab hold of, grip onto the truth. It's, um, a few years ago, I did a scuba diving course over in Manly. I was pretty hopeless. I've never been since. Um, Last day, you know, you're by the pool and you've just done your scuba diving and someone pushed me into the pool. I was fully clothed. My first thought was phone, (laughs) mobile phone. And I'm there desperately trying to stop this mobile phone going in the water, stop it getting wet, grabbing hold of it because it it was precious to me. My contacts were in there. My phone numbers were in there. It's pathetic, isn't it? If only we had that same attitude towards the word of God and the truth. Grabbing hold of it. We don't want anybody to lose it. It's so precious to us. Because the job of the leaders is to do two things in verse 9. To encourage others by sound doctrine and to refute those who, who oppose the truth. To build up the church and eliminate error. And we need leaders who can sit down with the Bible open and encourage people with healthy, hygienic, sound doctrine I'm so thankful to the men who did that with me I was converted at age 20 and I think of the men David, Vaughan, Dick, David people God placed into my life who would sit down with the Bible open and encourage me with sound doctrine sometimes I didn't like it sometimes I was railing against it saying but this and but that and he said no no this is the word of God this is the truth. And I'm equally thankful that they refuted and opposed me when I tried to say, no, no. And my job and leader's job is to protect the word of God. 
to protect people who can easily be led astray by false promises and false hope and false doctrine. And there are churches full of that. I mean, it's only people who are being scarred by churches that don't hold on to the truth and don't teach the truth. Uh, will you pray that our leaders here would love the truth? We don't want people who just fill their heads with church management and church growth and church leadership and church worship. We want people who devour the scriptures, who are willing to sit at their desk and pour over the scriptures and pray over the scriptures and just love the scriptures and love the truth so they can teach and encourage and refute. Listen to this quote from Spurgeon. It's blessed to eat into the very soul of the Bible. To eat into the very soul of the Bible. Until at last you come to talk in scriptural language and your spirit is flavoured with the words of the Lord and your blood is bibline. And the very essence of the Bible flows from you. Oh, that we had leaders where what oozes out of them, what flows from them is just Bible, 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 Bible. Will you pray for that? People who love the truth. If you want a, a church full of undiscerning, immature, podcast, whatever you like kind of Christians, let's just check the Bible on one side. But if you want a church where we sit under the word of God and the truth, pray for leaders like that. But truth by itself, there's such a thing as just knowing truth but having no impact on your life. And that's why verse 1 says, look at it with me, a knowledge of the truth that leads to what? What's the word? Godliness. That's the last thing. Godliness. A knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Because if you have been gripped by grace, if you love the truth, it must overflow into your character. It must change you. Remember character, character, character. More important than competency. More important than charisma. Character, character, character. A church I know in the UK, amazing preacher, extraordinary preacher. One of, as I was growing up as a Christian, one, one of the, the preachers I loved the most. Exegeted uh, society, exegeted the Bible, great communicator until the day that he left his wife and two kids for a homosexual relationship with another man. And the truth had not changed his character, hadn't changed his behavior. And that church, the faith of many was shattered. It's still recovering 10 years later. That's the impact that leaders have. Let's try and build a picture Please build a picture of, of this kind of man that, that Paul is talking about. Elders must be blameless, verse 6. An elder must be blameless. It's there again in verse 7. He must be blameless. Paul is screaming out, look for the people who are blameless. Choose the men who are beyond accusation. Choose the people who, who are, they're not faultless, they're not perfect. Otherwise, none of us will be elders. But nobody can point the finger at them. 
Nobody in the church can say, oh yeah, that's just our pastor. He, he preaches one thing on a Sunday, but you know, uh, Monday to Friday, oh, he just lives a different kind of life. No one can say hypocrite. And no one in the community, no one in society can have any dirt on this man. You know, he is blameless. Blameless in marriage, blameless in family life, and blameless in conduct. Look at the marriage thing, verse 7. Verse 6, rather. Uh, an elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife. I assume that Paul begins with marital faithfulness because it was an issue for leaders then and it's still an issue today. A survey in a leadership journal asked this question. Since you've been in local church ministry, have you ever done anything with someone who is not your spouse that was sexually inappropriate? What's the stats? 23% of people said yeah. 23%. It's one in four people, almost. And they're just the people who are being honest. And I'm not just talking about sexual immorality. I'm talking about the emotional affairs, the over-dependent friendships, the, the flirting. And Paul says to be a leader of God's church, you need to be a, a one-woman man. The husband, literally, of but one wife. I don't think Paul is excluding singles from eldership. Uh, Paul himself was single. All the indications are that Titus was single. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7 promotes singleness. But the assumption is that the majority of elders will be married. That's the norm. I don't think he's forbidding polygamy, although that's wrong. I don't think he is forbidding a widower to remarry and be an elder because 1 Corinthians 7 says that's, that's right. Now, please listen very carefully. He, he could be he could be forbidding a remarried divorcee from being an elder. But I don't think that's his main point. Otherwise, we'd end up going into discussions about what's a biblical divorce and unbiblical divorce. And we can just become legalistic. What Paul is really concerned about is that the elder is faithful to his wife. No one can look at him and say, yeah, but he flirts with women. Uh, yeah, but, you know, I've heard that he, yeah, he commits fornication. There's something profoundly uh, beautiful and countercultural about, about the man who, who loves his wife and has eyes only for his wife. There's something really beautiful about the man who is emotionally dependent on his wife and not the secretary at work. The man who communicates and depends on his wife and not just the girl in the coffee shop. And the man who loves his wife so much that he wants to see his wife flourish and grow in godliness and present her perfect on that last day. And when you see those type of husbands, when you see those types of men, you go, yeah, that's a man for ministry. That's a man to be an elder in our church. And if somebody has been sexually unfaithful, then yeah, they are excluded from eldership. Yes, they're forgiven. Of course they're forgiven. And yes, sure, God can and God will use them to grow his kingdom. But eldership in the church? No. Blameless in marriage. 
blameless in family life. For those who have kids, I think verse 6 kind of makes us shudder. The husband of but one wife and a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Parents have the proper responsibility for the nurture and upbringing of their kids. And here's the argument. If you're not ready to take responsibility for the spiritual welfare of your own family, then you're not ready to look after God's family. If, if you're not spiritually and morally leading your own family, you're not qualified for leadership in God's church. The word for kids in verse 7 is, or verse 6 rather, is, is tekna. It it's generally means children at home. But I think more importantly is the word that is translated believe in verse 6. A man whose children believe is literally a man whose children are faithful. I think that's more helpful because only God chooses people. We can't make people believe. Parents can't make their children believe. But as you're raising your kids, you can raise faithful kids. People who who love the scriptures, who love church, who are seeking to be uh, disciplined and kind and compassionate and those are the kind of people we need as elders it's been a real privilege working with um, with Mark Smith for the last few years man now with five kids and I think he models this read the Bible to his kids pray with his kids you see them come to church and they love church and they love kids church and they talk about the scriptures and there's a man who should be an elder. And if you think about marriage, if you think about families, what I'm saying is that when we're choosing leaders, perhaps we need to start asking the harder questions. Look at their marriages, look at their parenting. And perhaps I need to say to some people, you know, I really would rather that you spent more time working on your marriage and loving your wife and loving your kids and less time at church <laughs> because that's more important. Uh, lastly, blameless in conduct. I want you to build this picture of this leader. You walk into church and you meet a leader and he's, he's not overbearing, verse 7. Uh, he, he's not hot-headed, he's not arrogant, he's not stubborn, he's not autocratic, he's not headstrong. Yeah, he knows where he wants the church to go, but he's not going to force it on people and crush people. And he's not quick-tempered. Even when people frustrate him and annoy him, he doesn't flare up. He doesn't, it doesn't flare up and uh, lash out at them. He's patient and he's kind and he's gentle. Uh, he's not given to drunkenness, verse 7. I might enjoy a glass of wine occasionally. There's nothing wrong with that. But no one would ever say, oh, he was blind drunk last week. He's not violent, verse 7. He doesn't strike out in words or in action. You never see him crush people with his words. He thinks before he speaks. He doesn't batter people physically, emotionally, verbally. He doesn't pursue dishonest gain. Verse 7, he doesn't spot the person who walks to the church and as he's chatting to them, he finds out that they've got a, a holiday home. He's thinking in his mind, oh, I must befriend them because I can get a free holiday out of them. He's not that kind of man. How does verse 8 describe him? Look at verse 8. 
He's hospitable. He opens his home. He opens his heart to people. He gives practical help to anyone in need. He loves the stranger, literally. That's what the word hospitable means, loving the stranger. He's not the professional elder, you know. This is my home life. This is my church life. This is my office life. There's no such thing as that. This is my life. Here I am. Here's my home. Here's me. He loves what is good. He is self-controlled. He's upright. He is holy. He's devout and he's disciplined. Now, you're getting the picture of this man? He's a man who walks with integrity with his God. He's not your arrogant, powerful, money-seeking, crushing people, headstrong kind of guy. He's a gentle, patient, lovely, graceful man. And when you see that, that's the man to be an elder. See, church is full of of people with messy lives. People with dissatisfied marriages, lusts, addictions, habits, sins spiraling out of control. And what people want, what people crave for, is not just good teaching. Yeah, teaching is vital. They must have good teaching, but not just good teaching. What they crave for is sort of the incarnation of the truth. People who walk the truth, people who model the truth, people who display the truth, people whose lives show the, the power of the Spirit at work in them and how grace changes them to give people hope, to give people a, a, a glimpse of, of what God can do as you submit to Him, as you live for Him. That's what they want. Truth and godliness. So I want to ask you to do two things. Please do these two things. Pray. Please pray. Please pray for me as your pastor. Please, please pray that I be a man that every day just sends grace, truth, godliness. And if you don't see that, please challenge me. Please rebuke me. Please talk to me. Please pray. Pray for all of our leaders, our connect leaders, our wardens, our parish councillors, our kids leaders. And pray that God would raise up people who are gripped by grace and love the truth and are walking in godliness. But lastly, encourage each other to be like that because this list here is not just for leaders. This list here is for you if you call yourself a disciple of Jesus Christ. You should be bearing these qualities and these characteristics. And so when you see the person next to you and they're struggling with a sin, uh, yeah, get alongside them and encourage them. And when you see the person next to you and, and they want to know God better, open the scriptures with them and share the truth with them and love them and encourage them. God loves his church. God is passionate about his church. And I pray this church will be marked by those three things of grace and truth and godliness. Let me pray.
I'll pray first, and I'll give you a few moments by yourself just to pray by yourselves. Lord God, I want to thank you that you lavish us with your love and your grace and your mercy. Father, if there are people here tonight who have yet to understand and experience your grace, Lord, please, would you have mercy on them. If there are people here tonight who maybe for the first time have realized that, that Jesus is their Savior, Lord, I pray that you would call them home and bring them to yourself and help us to love them well. And Lord, if we call ourselves your disciples, help us please to yeah, be full of grace and truth and, and godliness. And please raise up leaders. Please, in your mercy and your kindness, raise up leaders for this church who love you, who love other people. Lord, please prevent us from being a church that just craves to be successful. Lord, please make us a church that are known as just being servants, servants of you. Give you a moment by yourself to pray by yourself.